Hey everybody, this is Alex. Hey, it's Natasha. And we are here to talk just for a second about Extra Crunch TechCrunch's subscription product. Extra Crunch is where a lot of our best analysis and follow-up stories lives. We focus a lot on startups, building, and even poke fun here and there. It's true. I also write a daily column called The Exchange that's over on Extra Crunch. And the good news is, if you don't have EC access yet, we have a deal for you. Yes, you can use, I think, the best code there is. So don't tell anyone who doesn't listen to Equity because they're not invited. The code is equity, all caps, for 50% off your Extra Crunch subscription. So head over to techcrunch.com slash subscribe. Use that code. Make us look good internally. We say thanks across the internet. And now let's do a show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast, where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I am joined this week by Natasha Moscarenas. Natasha, how are you? I'm doing lovely. I shoveled for the first time this morning, and so the holiday spirit has like physically kicked in now. <laughs> Last night when I was watching the snow come down here in Providence, I was like, oh, it's so beautiful. And then this morning, I walked on my back deck, and I was like, oh, gosh darn it. Like. <laughs> You forget, or I, I we all forget. <laughs> it's it's a lot more shoveling than I thought. I had to clear a part of my backyard so my dogs can go forth and do their thing. And then it, it kept snowing. So I have to do it all over again after this podcast. So I'm really, really kind of annoyed. <laughs> but it's winter, it's cold, but I mean amazingly the news hasn't stopped. You and I have been super busy the last couple of weeks. I mean, this is the busiest December I can recall, I think. You too? I wasn't sure if it was like a busy or slow week because I feel like everyone's kind of moving in slow motion mentally, but like has to respond. But then when we were putting together the show, it was clear that it was not a slow week. And um, yeah, no one's taking a vacation this year, it seems. Oh, gosh, I actually am, which I'm pretty excited about. But not today. And we have a lot to get through. So we are going to talk about some COVID related funding rounds. We have some cool early stage stuff that you're going to love. We have a late stage round as well. We have a couple of notes about some product from startups that we're pretty excited about. There's a little bit about Bitcoin at the end if you're into the crypto thing. And then, of course, at the very end, we have notes about the public market and IPOs, which we're going to keep brief and we're going to hit just the important points to get you out of here in record time. Oh, and we should say, Danny Crichton, I was going to make a joke about him dying, but that wouldn't be funny. That would He's not on vacation be. this week. So vacation in quotes. I'm sure if you tweeted him, he will still respond in some way. <laughs> yeah, he's tweeting out news articles about the Luckin accounting fraud. And I'm like, Danny, <laughs> log off. <laughs> Anyways, he's not dead. He will be back. We love him. He's just taking a well-deserved break because I don't think anyone I know works harder than he does, period. Before we jump into the show, I wanted to let all the Equity listeners know that I am now writing a newsletter for TechCrunch. I am writing Startups Weekly, which is our weekly dose of startup information. Think not necessarily funding rounds or breaking news, but more analytical pieces, tactful advice, and really trying to itch at the themes and the learnings that shape the way that startups work. And so I'm really excited to take it on from the wonderful Eric Eldon. And my debut goes out on Saturday. So yeah, subscribe. I would be super grateful. Thank you. Let's jump in with some COVID funding rounds. Natasha, have you heard of Presso? They're building this uh, like dry cleaning machine. It's pretty much the coolest thing I've ever seen. I, I was I was enamored with the startup when I when I read it. But what was your first impression? Yeah, I mean, so Presso's, uh, Prezzo is a name of a startup that you would assume you kind of probably know in some way. Like I probably know a startup named Prezzo in yes. some sector. So when I saw it, that's definitely what made me click. But 
What this one does is that it's a robotic dry cleaning startup. It has a piece of hardware. When it was first starting, was planning to install these machines in hotel hallways to help business travelers clean up their clothing. The pandemic has since shifted its focus. And this is the interesting part. They're now teaming up with production studios to clean costumes, 150 costumes in a day. The play is let's clean and disinfect your costumes in a time where everyone wants things to be clean and disinfected. For, for sure. And I think it can do a garment in five minutes. So that's a pretty quick turnaround. 150 a day, you can do the math on what that works out to in terms of hours. But I mean, it's just a great idea. So not a surprise to see it raise $1.6 backed by Pathbreaker, AME, Cloud Ventures, SOSV, 1517 Fund, and Yeti, all caps, capital. Now, it's raised a total of $2.2 million, So this pre-seed round is the majority of its funding to date. And we should point out, actually, this is based in Atlanta. This is not a kind of an LA-based company. They are moving their business model to also a different time zone by focusing on the Hollywood market, which, of course, as you and I both know, is huge because the, the movie-making industry is gigantic. And so I thought this was super, super cool. I would also use this, by the way, in a business setting. So if they want to get back to that when we can travel, I would love to have fast dry cleaning. And in fact, I kind of want one for my house, to be honest. <laughs> So, One of my friends does have it. We do make fun of him. Not at Prezzo, but he has like an in-house dry cleaning chamber. And I'm like, this is problematic. I don't know how it's going to be used wrong, but it will be. Um, it sounds but, like the startup, like some sort of a horror novel. Like yeah. I went to his house and he had an in-house dry cleaning machine. And then I was uh, inside of it. <laughs> Two last notes on this startup is one, they've gotten a lot of interest from some big players, Netflix, HBO, Apple TV, yep. Fox, Disney, and Hulu. Obviously, we don't know like exactly what those contracts look like, but... Obviously, that's great. Some some great affirmation. The one red flag I have is like we do know COVID doesn't spread from a surface at this point, and so we don't know how much of like the cleanliness is is being framed as like we will save you from COVID. Just a, a vanity cleaning perspective could be something to keep in mind. Yeah, I mean, my read of this was you know if you are in Hollywood, you want to keep your bubble, and so you don't want to be sending out your assistants into the world to take your stuff to dry cleaners. Well, you have to interact with people and be around folks. So I don't think the cleaning was like the COVID thing to me. It was more like that you can do it like in the onset or whatever the you know similar thing there is. Anyways, 1.6 million, one to keep an eye on. And it's spelled P-R-E-S-S-O if you want to go look it up. And that brings us to open. Oh, this is a fun one. Open Sensors. Yeah. So Open Sensors is a air monitoring platform that is allowing offices to be more COVID safe and dare I say, is not a remote work play. I, that was what came to my mind first is like people are backing a startup that believes offices are going to be in our future. <laughs> it feels counterintuitive in 2020, but here we are. And it's $4 million. So obviously a lot of folks believe in this. Yeah. So, you know, their basic technology is that they monitor air quality and light sensitivity and then put that data to understand how a workforce and workplace air is, is conditioned and patterned. It has 30 customers, you know, all across the world. And I think it's smart in that building costs still are one of the biggest expenses for a company. If we can find ways to make them be useful again one day, I see this kind of technology really mattering. For sure. And I really liked how this one kind of came to be. The founder said that it was initially a, quote, fun hobby project. I was playing around with IoT as my daughter has asthma. So I was monitoring air quality up in our neighborhood to try and see if I can correlate the particulates, spikes, and so forth with their asthma attacks, put the project out, and then people said, hey, can you manage our buildings? And then so it bootstrapped from there, and now it's raising you know $4 million from uh, Crane Venture Partners, who I don't actually know, but I'm sure they're fine. Anyways, it, it just, it's, it's, a rare, it's a weird, not a weird, it's a, it's a non-traditional venture capital story, and that's why this one really stood out to me. Speaking of non-traditional venture capital stories, we have uh, yes. a... 
We have Lantern, which is hmm. a death-related company, as the show notes has so aptly <laughs> described. But its focus is providing a single place to guide someone of navigating life before and after death. And so it's both pre-planning and planning the funeral and tools and resources and mental health, which I think is top of mind. Like jokes aside, we have a very heightened sense of mortality this year. I definitely have a blog post to be written about that at some point on how that impacts just the way we live and work. And so I think they've raised $1.4 million in seed financing, I think based on this idea that investors are understanding like death is something that's going to happen to all of us. Going back to what you said about navigating life after death, I thought that was more the place of religion and philosophy versus yeah. startup. <laughs> Sorry, I, I couldn't resist, but I also wanted to let you finish your paragraph. No, no, um, no. I was like, I am definitely, I'm definitely watching Lucifer way too much, which is a show about the devil making a comeback. So I'm like, yeah, after death, you're back. It's fine. That's very heavy metal. So I sincerely approve of it. Back to Lantern, because I got us off the rails. The $1.4 million seed round was led by Draper Associates and participated in by... Ahem, Amplify, X-Factor Ventures, F7 Ventures, Jerry Moan, Nikita Miller, and Joshua Goldman, who actually, I think I know, actually, I think I did it with him once. Anyways, COVID bump in this case, which is a little bit sad, but they grew 61% in April, month over month. So obviously as COVID snagged us, people paid more attention and they do have a paid service and a free service. The paid one is $27 a year. Pretty cheap. And the other one, of course, is free. Yeah, it's, I, I think this is kind of a lightweight almost like not a will replacement because I doubt it has the same legal binding, but like it's a way to organize your affairs and you're probably going to be alive for a while. So it couldn't be monthly. You don't want to pay for a death service monthly. That just feels weird. That's like a countdown. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Yeah. I'm like, do we make jokes? Probably not. But oh I no, mean, we make jokes. Come on. This is equity. <laughs> okay. Uh, then if we're talking about that really quick, curious about a couple of things. One, what's their go to market? Who are they advertising to? And when are they advertising? How much does it cost to acquire a customer? For a startup that's making you want to think about death, the COVID mm. bump, obviously, I'm guessing people are Googling it. But in the post-COVID, I'm, I'm really curious about those things. I believe the go-to-market is standing in, in kind of hidden street corners at night and going, boo, to people <laughs> and go like, have you thought about your mortality? Lantern. It's just, it's just oh, this guy holding a affair. lantern and he's like, We're have you get... ever thought about your mortality? <laughs> We're going to get emails about this now. <laughs> No. If you're on the Lantern PR team, keep in mind, we are kidding. And we'll just reiterate, $1.4 million seed round, interesting company. On the cost to acquire customers, it would depend on the LTV, so uh, on the long-term value of the customers. At $27 a year, you would expect people to stick around for a couple of years to generate enough value to have a material CAC. Otherwise, this is going to be content marketing or something else along those lines. Okay. From the small to the big, Natasha, a round came out this week that actually surprised me, which is rare, I think, these days. Public, which is a kind of Robinhood competitor of sorts raised a $65 million Series C. And the reason why this surprised me is they raised less than a year ago and they raised a lot less. So this round, the size and the timing was a surprise to me. I'm curious though, how long have you been aware of public? Probably since when you first wrote about them. <laughs> but I, I think the thing that really stuck out to me about them is one, they have a great social media presence, but yeah. their focus on social as a big part of like the investing journey. I think that's something that Robinhood has been really slow to innovate on. Like we see Wall Street bets on Reddit being like this like very spicy place. I think public very smartly made community part of its play and I think is definitely getting the benefits of that. So I think the social media is great. Shout out to Katie Perry from that team, I think her name is. She's fantastic on Twitter and I think does a good job of highlighting what you can do with public, which is like have a, a public list of your investments. So you can kind of share with people what you are putting your dollars into either for returns or for moral reasons if you're putting money into stocks that are more focused on other things. But the, the thing is, they raised a $15 million Series B 
and they announced that in March. Wow. So to raise a $65 million Series C in December is bonkers. So I got, I was going to say on the phone, but I didn't. I got on Zoom with the two founders, Yannick and Leif, if I recall correctly. Lovely guys. And I was like, okay, what's going on? So we talked about growth and they didn't have the kind of like spike in growth that a lot of other fintechs had in 2020. They had kind of like consistent linear growth throughout the year, but pretty sure like 30% a month they were saying. So pretty aggressive, but not like they didn't spark in March and then stop growing after that was their point. So, okay, cool. I was curious about how they make money. Because if you raise 65 million, your valuation, you know, goes up sharply because that's a, a new price and you have a lot more of a bet behind you. So you have to really make sure you generate the revenue. And Natasha, they, they're not really revenue focused yet, which felt kind of like a throwback to an earlier time in startups. Totally. Not- I mean, I, right. I feel like in, maybe in like the seed to series B perspective, it might make more sense to not have a revenue a strong revenue plan, even if you're unprofitable, as we see public companies going public as unprofitable. I think the biggest thing is that they're not bringing in much revenue. So also tell us about how you figured that out, because I thought that was fascinating, the digging aspect. (laughs) Okay, so shout out to Frank Chaparro or Chaparro, maybe over at the block. He got me on to a way to track payment for order flow revenues. And the reason why this is important to listeners of this show, and this will come up in a second, is that this is a way that Robinhood makes lots of money. Robinhood makes lots of money by routing certain orders to certain market makers, and they get paid cents to a half dollar per trade, depending on what kind of trade it is. And that generates the bulk of their revenues, and that's how they manage to offer trades for free. So I discovered this method of generating revenue via Robinhood, via Frank. And so I went looking for how public uh, was doing, because this stuff has to be you know, available. So public has a trading partner, I believe it's Apex. And so I went into Apex, I found their filings, I dug through those. And confirmed with the company that what I was looking at was the aggregate payment for order flow from all Apex customers, which is inclusive of public. And the numbers for the aggregate weren't very large. So public's subsection of that couldn't be particularly big. So I was talking to the guys. I'm like, what is the plan? And they were like, you know, chill. We're not in a hurry about that. And they wouldn't tell me much about what's coming next. Now, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. They have built something that's very interesting. They do have some revenues and they have a very active user base. So I can see various pathways to making lots of money off of that. It's just the delay that feels very interesting because, you know, everything's gotten more SaaS-ish, which means everyone's focused on revenue growth. And in this case, they're just doing something a little bit different for a while. I- I'm excited to see what comes out next year with this. Yeah, month. they're not a lazy company. They have been hustling. And I think the fact that they've been able to raise such a big Series C means that they have something huge up their sleeves or else they wouldn't be able to convince investors to bet on a company that doesn't have huge revenue generators at this stage. One note too is I think one of your earlier pieces, the founders were saying like public one day could be the community and the place people come to talk about trading. And so it would be cool to see them even do like a Slack play where they charge per seat down the road. There's a ton of ways that it could happen. Private rooms, you could have many publications on the site that track what you do. You could just charge a straight up subscription for increased tooling data, whatever it is. I mean, there's a lot of ways to make money off it. I'm curious what they build and, and, and where it goes. And as a final note, before we talk about Robinhood for just a second, Excel led the round. It's the third time in a row I think Excel has led a public round. So they have really doubled down on this. And Excel, by the way, as I noticed this morning, has been really active. So uh, a data point there, if you're looking at the VC market, Excel has felt busier than usual. Um, one of our colleagues, Steve O'Hare, has been reporting on their Europe expansion as well. And so, yeah, definitely not some, a firm to ever ignore, especially right now. But yeah, Alex, tell us about the opposite side of the coin, the more negative news for stock trading apps this year. 
Well, there's two. There's two quick things about Robinhood. One that I missed and one that I that I caught this morning. So the, the news that broke this morning is that the SEC essentially charged Robinhood with being very bad back in 2015 to 2018, misrepresenting how they made money and also not executing trades for customers at the best price, which is an important thing. Robinhood is going to pay a $65 million penalty without admitting wrongdoing. And so keep in mind that th- this thing is about a few years ago. So this is not a current issue with Robinhood. On the other hand, also this week, yesterday, in fact, Massachusetts, their securities division, I didn't know they had one, apparently they do, TIL, is going after Robinhood for a lot of things. Like, uh, There's a pretty large complaint, gamification of trading and some other stuff, and they want to censure the company, have it remit some funds, and it's a big darn deal. I don't know how that's going to shake out. I don't have enough experience in covering litigation of this sort to really understand it, but to see Robinhood pay the scale of penalty they did, $65 million is an actual sum that matters to a startup. Uh, even when it's well-funded as Robinhood, it's not like finding Facebook $65 million, which doesn't matter. That in combination with the Massachusetts suit puts some pressure on the firm. I mean, Natasha, you and I have been talking about this company as an IPO candidate for next year. This can't be what it wants to have hanging over its shoulder when it looks to go public. I was about to say, I think that was probably the thing to track next. Even $65 million, as you said, isn't an ignorable chunk. It's not going to hurt Robinhood, but it's, it could hurt its reputation and it's not had the best reputation this year. It's always bounced back, it seems, based on user growth. Maybe that means that they will not go, depending on the Massachusetts investigation too, maybe we can expect the second half of 2021 instead of first half of 2021. As the famous movie says, tis but a flesh wound. I don't think this is going to slow the company down materially. It, it may give companies like Public a bit of a bump from people that are like, well, you know, maybe this is the thing that gets me off of Robinhood onto a different platform. I don't know. I'm sure everyone will tell us if their growth accelerates. And so we'll, we'll find out about that soon enough. But let's pivot to happier news, which is that everyone's favorite startup to talk about, Substack, has put together a quasi homepage for the internet, an RSS hub for your newsletters, a place to find things. Natasha, I think we're hype about this. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny, Substack went from the thing to be hype about to the thing that it's cool to not be hype about so fast. And I'm really seeing that happen in Twitter commentary, which is, I'm sure is just any startup that gets a lot of attention and especially love from journalists in its early days. But this product move, I think, was really overdue for Substack. I have had such a problem not necessarily finding newsletters, like having to sift through all the newsletters in my inbox, but more so discovering newsletters and just like having a clean way to really understand and see them and and how much I have on my plate. I wonder why it took them this long. There's a bunch of other apps out there that let you do this. Substack building it itself is going to make it the immediate winner because it has the base. But yeah, I mean, net good news for the company. I'm pretty excited about this. Uh, I went ahead and and signed up for the open beta last night because I wanted to make sure that I played with it before we talked about it on the show. And a couple of notes. One, I was shocked at how many Substacks I'm subscribed to. I'm subscribed to, uh, how does it, I have 13 plus, I have 17 that I'm subscribed to, not counting the Substack, Substacks, which is meta to some degree. I was surprised that that many I had signed up for, and they're all free. I mean, these are just stuff that I read, like Big Technology, Brian Kimmel's newsletter, Books on GIF, Too Wordy by our own Natasha Mascarenas, and on and on and on. And I was happy to see also you can bring in your own RSS feeds from other newsletters. You can kind of make it a central hub. To me, it feels feature light which I presume will be expanded in time. This is a, a beta, of course. We don't want to get too persnickety, but it's fast. It's simple. I liked it because it's baked into my Substack account. I already had access to it. So I feel like I'm going to use it over Feedly or, you know, what Dig Reader, which I think actually is dead, or anything else that I have to go somewhere else to bring it to me. I, I, I like it. Yeah, I think exactly. Like Substack doing it in-house makes it that we don't really have to think too much about using it. So I'll probably use it as well. 
But one scrappier project that I will give a thumbs up to is Flowbox, started by Patricia Mu. I may have pronounced her last name wrong, so I apologize for that. But Flowbox is the way she describes it as Marie Kondo for newsletters. And it's, you know, it is able to be a little bit louder with its splash because it's not a venture backed company at this point, I think. And they were saying like, you know, it'd be really cool eventually to see these places be a place where you can like comment on the same line as your friend who also subscribes to big technology. I think there's a lot of potential for these platforms to really like be useful and beyond just like bringing newsletters together. And so, yeah, it's 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 hard to hate on it completely. For sure. And the only thing that I want to throw on top of this is that we've talked a lot about paid newsletters kind of in and amongst the Twitterati, of which I think you and I kind of take part in the last 12 to 18 months. Can you go indie? Should you go on Substack? I am much more likely to contribute to newsletters if I know how much I'm paying in aggregate for them, if I get some sort of volume discount, if two authors offer a bundle. And to me, the reader interface from Substack makes a lot of that possible. And so I'm excited to see if there's future monetization tips, tricks, improvements, features that can come out from this that would encourage me to give more journalists more money. I think for me, it's just a friction element. This takes care of a lot of the friction of wanting to sign up for newsletters because they just get lost in my inbox because email is awful. This is pretty cool. Um, so it, you know, it feels like a meta blog of the yes. individual subject blogs, which I like. But before we move on to something that I think is going to be a really funny conversation about Cameo because there's some jokes that are going to come. Did you read the Taylor Lorenz article on kind of like journalism and influencers over on Neiman Lab? Yes, it, I did. I thought it was great. The point that Taylor makes is that independent journalists will realize how difficult it is to really be an influencer. It requires a very consistent churn of work. I was just telling you before the show, like I have been unable to contribute to my Substack for months. And obviously I'm a full-time employed employee person of TechCrunch. But even when the bar is so low that I have to produce once a week, 300 words, I can't do it because I, it's just, it feels heavy lift. But you know, it's not about me. It's about these journalists that are now going to have to consistently give in new content in order to get new subscribers. And that's exhausting. I think every single journalist who has more than one person who reads their stuff, and I think we all kind of meet that mark, has thought about going independent. You know, putting out their own shingle, running their own life, totally. drinking coffee in the morning without having Slack meetings. You know, I, of course, fantasies always fall short. The thing that I'll say is I think that there's going to be a, a middle ground. We were talking about this before the show. Chris Gates, our, our producer, and I had a similar idea, which is that maybe the answer isn't only big publications and people going indie like Alex Kantowitz, formerly of BuzzFeed, who writes uh, big technology and is doing a great job to his credit. Maybe there's a middle ground. Then like three people and an editor get together and form like a miniature magazine. You know, I, I wonder if Substack could build out tools to allow for that sort of thing. Also, I'll, I'll be interested to see how Medium fights back. But certainly there's a lot of good conversation here. If you're interested, we'll put all these links into the post that will be up on TC with this podcast. So feel free to take a look. But in the meantime, we are going to pivot to Facebook's taking on of Cameo. Cameo being a hot startup, Facebook being um, your dad's favorite place to post memes about COVID. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, Cameo is a place where you can hire a celebrity to do a X amount of time clip for a loved one saying whatever you really want, as long as it's in, you know, within a good hearted <laughs> kind of dialogue. But Facebook has all these people already. It is the social network still, despite all, anything you have to say about Facebook, it has the access. And so now they finally caught up to yet another startup by creating a way for users, Facebook users to start interacting with celebrities on a paid basis. So a couple of things. To me, this is really late. Like I've known about Cameo forever. 
because artists that I follow, I don't really Instagram, but I have a kind of a burner Instagram account so I can look at people's like posts and they're often like, just did a bunch of cameos. So it feels very much part of the conversation. I feel like cameo is now like a brand name, like Kleenex. Like I'm going to go sure. get a cameo. Cause I, I know what that means versus I'm going to go get a Facebook clip with celebrity that doesn't make that doesn't work but my friend drew olinoff actually a former tech cruncher got me one of these with an eagles player i think about a year ago so oh, i've actually so been given one and <laughs> and they're really cool i dig it but to me this is like another example of a major social platform letting something else spring up where they could have been early so we were talking about this and you know i think a lot about twitter's dm functionality which mm -hmm. still doesn't have like things that i are very obvious and i think that's allowed things like discord to even get bigger because it's created communities elsewhere. I think it was Alexis Ohanian who said that like, you know, OnlyFans, something that Reddit could have built because it already had gone wild and so forth. Uh, I don't think my mom listens to this show, so I think that's okay to say. And so to me, in this case, it's like Facebook really could have been earlier on, on this sort of product instead of letting Cameo get to be so big, so entrenched over the years. I don't think Facebook's going to be able to kill it off. I don't think it's going to work. Something I'm still bearish on about Cameo and about this new Cameo copy tool is like how many times will will Drew get you a Eagles Cameo, right? How many times are you going to come back to the platform and gift it again? A founder was talking to me about this today, so I can't take the point, but how many times will a customer return? I think I'm really curious to see that information. Obviously, Cameo has a lot of money in the bank and Facebook can afford to do it, but I would have loved to see Facebook take a more ambitious play. I think OnlyFans is the more ambitious play, is a continuing life cycle of new content that you pay for versus the one-offs. And so not it's not like breaking news, but I'm definitely more bullish on OnlyFans than I am on Cameo or this Facebook Yeah, thing. no, I think I, I would keep them somewhat distinct because one is des OnlyFans is designed for like, I mean, let's just say more private consumption given its current content mix. And I think that Cameos are designed to be socially shared. So like sure. if you get a cameo, I think you're like, oh my God, you know, uh, I don't know. Natasha, name someone who's famous amongst the cool kids. I'm like, I don't, Issa Rae is my only person that this podcast thinks I Issa think Rae. is famous. Uh, I got a cameo from Issa Rae. I would go around showing everybody that. I, I would, would be like, look, look at this, look at this. I would not go, look at my new OnlyFans subscription. <laughs> I feel like yeah. that has a slightly different social connotation. Uh, yeah. And to be clear, OnlyFans isn't only porn. It's just mostly porn, I, I think right now. So that's, that's the point. And I think the social virality element of Cameo could give it some staying power. That's fair. And also, uh, one thing I've learned by marrying someone who is gift-giving oriented is that many people like gifts. And Cameos are relatively easy gifts to give, and they feel personalized and fun. So that, that could lead to more buying repetition. And two shout-outs to our fellow journalists out there. The Axios has a great piece on the creator economy and its growth. And also, the information has great data on OnlyFans. If you want to take a look at how the sector and the company are doing, we'll have those in the piece. Okay, Alex, I'm going to make us take a hard pivot from influencers to something I think is equally exciting to some of our listeners. Bitcoin, tell us what is up. Do you think it's equally exciting to the same listeners or a different <laughs> subset of the equity listeners? There's cohort? definitely a middle of the Venn diagram and we are hearing you. And well, so this you, is for you. <laughs> if you want to pay for your OnlyFans sub with Bitcoin, we got you. Uh, no, jokes aside, I'm sure everyone's seen this by now, but Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are having quite the moment. They are back up to kind of new all-time highs. Bitcoin, as we talked to you about 23K, give or take, Ethereum up to kind of it's like July 2018 levels. And so I was really kind of excited about this. I've been covering Bitcoin since 2013, 2014. Back in my first TC stint, I used to have a Bitcoin-focused podcast with John Biggs, who now is ESC over at Gizmodo, lovely guy. And so, you know, I've been covering Bitcoin 
off and on forever. I covered the ICO boom. And so to me, I have an emotional connection with the industry because I've always been curious, will it pan out? Will it have the staying power that its fans believe? And the answer is, yeah, I think this far into it. I think the answer is yes. What what is driving it? Do we know this? So I tried to figure that out. So this morning I went around and looked at a bunch of discrete data points and I looked at unique Bitcoin addresses used in the last 12 months and how much money are miners, people running the computers that power blockchain making in fees. And I looked at how is the distributed decentralized app market or DAP market doing? How is the decentralized finance market or DeFi doing? And looking Mm. through all these different little lenses, these are windows into a bigger picture, of course, not the whole image. I think there's more interest in using cryptocurrencies. I think there is a generally bullish angle to most of the charts that I saw. And so to me, the price activity may be overheated compared to growth and activity, but certainly it's not predicated on nothing. You know, there is some substance behind this. Um, is this coming up in your conversations with friends? I'm kind of curious if it's, if it's getting back out there. You know, my boyfriend is allocating $100 per paycheck to invest in Bitcoin. And he's like, if I lose all of it, I will be okay. Mm-hmm. Like, this is what I am doing because I don't want to be behind, but I don't want to make the huge stake yet. So it's coming up, but I don't think it's like as mainstream as Robinhood is, if that's a fair comparison to me. I have to ask you an unfair question. I don't know the answer to this. How, how dorky is your boyfriend? He's so dorky. You guys have the same exact reading taste. So that should give you a sense of how, how did that get turned around on me? <laughs> Well, one, I, really do. I now want to meet your boyfriend so I can get book recs from him. And also, ouch, hello. All right. I think, I think you can just burn both of us. Anyways, I was curious if he was more tech, you know, forward, because that would help explain why he's into this. But I think to quote the great movie, Brewster's Millions, it's a ledge against inflation. And so I'm not surprised to see more people adding it to their portfolios. I think it's cool. Take a look at the crypto space if you want to. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's still all the problems, but there's still all the possibilities as well. And just to tease our end of the year episode extravaganza, we will be having a prediction episode coming out. I think we talk about Bitcoin because Danny Crichton brings it up as Danny Crichton would. So there will be more content coming before the end of the year. The real question for that episode is what's going to get cut? Because there was a lot of things in that show. That was uh, every year. The prediction episode of Equity is a mess uh, in the best possible sense. And this year was no exception. Okay, but let's let's wrap with my favorite topic, which, of course, is the public markets. Natasha, you and I were both bummed to hear that we may see no IPOs from a firm and Roblox this year. And we were both surprised to learn that it wasn't because they did poorly. It was because other IPOs had done something else. Yeah. When does that happen? I don't understand why and how market conditions can be too good to go public. So tell me what your first reaction was to that, because my first was it's because of Christmas. Well, my first reaction to the news that Roblox was going to delay its IPO was one of crushing disappointment because I was so excited to see how it priced. It's such a fascinating company with its developer ecosystem and, and a user base of people that are much younger than we usually think about. The fact that it's a gaming company, but with staying power, how do you price it? It's just so fascinating. And then it got delayed because essentially DoorDash, Airbnb, and C3.ai exploded out of the gate last week to the degree which it wanted to hold off on its IPO to better figure out how to price itself. Which, oh, Natasha, you know, I mean, how, how does the well get poisoned by success? Just. <laughs> So disappointing. And then, of course, Affirm is also expected to delay its IPO as well for similar reasons. So that's two unicorns that I was hype about that are now going to be in early January. And so this week, too, I believe like Wish and Upstart also debuted. They didn't go insanely as well as we saw Airbnb go. And so how do you think that is kind of impacting? Do you think Roblox and Affirm are feeling a little like, damn it, we should have gone? (laughs) 
So that that's the question that I've been mulling over. I don't have a great answer to it, but just to kind of throw some numbers behind that, Upstart priced at 20 bucks a share at the low end of its range, rose about 30% in its first day of trading. Talked to the CEO about it, seemed pretty fine. It's kind of standard IPO call. Wish priced at the top end of its range and then dropped relatively sharply on its first day. Hard to tell if that 16% or whatever it was, was, was super material to the company's long-term value. It raised so much money in the IPO. It's now so well capitalized. It probably doesn't really care about its short-term price that much, but it, do, it shows that also not every IPO, to your point, is going to go up by 100% on the first day. So you know, you're thinking highly of yourself if you're worried about that being the yeah. problem. But to add a little context, to give Roblox a fair shake here, they were going to have a secondary component to the IPO. And what that means is they were going to let existing shareholders like employees, maybe the founders, maybe some investors, sell some of their stock in the debut. And what you don't want to do is tell your employees, hey, you can sell, you know, a thousand shares each, whatever it is, and then price it and then watch it double after they've sold. Because then you feel like a jerk. So I empathize, but also again, like it's a fundraising event. It's not the end of the world. Price it, do your best, get out there, raise some money and build a bigger company. I mean, <laughs> what's wrong with capitalism? My takeaway here is that your first week of January is going to be lit. And so is the show. Malia Russell over at BI scooped last night that Expensify is also looking to do a direct listing next year. What? I know. So yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you should take vacation while you can, because I have a really bad slash good feeling you'll be back <laughs> very soon. Oh, that reminds me. Great segue to the last thing. I am off actually starting kind of like next Wednesday through the Monday that starts the year, which is the fourth, I think. But Chris Gates and I have signed a blood pact to log on on December 28th to do Equity Monday. Dude, kudos. So <laughs> if you are trying to avoid your family and need eight minutes of us rambling about what's going on, that will be out. So Equity Monday will persist. We have two really fun things planned for you guys coming up and a lot more in the new year. It's going to be a really big 21 for the show. I am legitimately excited. Yes, I think we will have some fun equity updates for our longtime listeners to get amped about. I know we're excited about it. We can't share everything just yet, but expect us to be more annoying and more influencer-y <laughs> coming up in 2021. I don't even know how to read that. So I'm going to end the show. Uh, <laughs> we miss Danny. We love you for listening. Thanks. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. <laughs>